You know, we love those situations where maybe hope is just about completely gone and then something miraculous happens. We're thrilled when the, the team or the person who hasn't got a prayer, they haven't got a chance, and they overcome and they win. You know, when it comes to people talking about miracles, a lot of times we end up talking about amazing sports feats. They get labeled as a miracle. In a few days, some of you might remember this, others of you won't, but it's the 40th anniversary of the Miracle on Ice. On February 22nd, 1980, at the 1980 Olympics in Lake Placid, Illinois, Lake Placid, Illinois, Lake Placid New York, the U.S. hockey team beat the heavily favored Russians. And the U.S. would go on to win the gold medal. The world was shocked. Our own St. Louis Blues came back to win a, a playoff game, which has been called the Monday Night Miracle. It was May 12, 1986. The Blues were playing the Calgary Flames. The Blues were on the brink of elimination. Their season was just about to end. With 12 minutes left in the game, they were down 5-2. to two. Didn't look very hopeful. But with a little over a minute left in the game, the Blues tied it at 5-5. Five to five. And then they went on to win in overtime. In 2011, a sports writer would call the Baseball Cardinals' run to the World Series a bunch of miracles and cosmic events. Of course, the greatest so-called miracle came in Game 6 when in the bottom of the ninth, David Freeze hit a triple to tie the game. And then in the bottom of the 11th, he hit a home run to win it. And if we're talking about sports great happenings miracles we can't forget the blues run last year from dead last to win the stanley cup and these were all just great and amazing moments in sports were they miracles though in biblical proportions no i don't think so such exciting things don't just occur in sports though consider the person with the cancerous tumor it's terminal and then it disappears Remember the boy, there was a movie made about the boy who went through the ice at Lake St. Louis, who not only survived against all, all odds, but he fully recovered? Or consider a woman who's losing the battle with alcoholism. She turns her life over to Jesus and then never drinks another drop. Those are great things. I actually experienced what I would call an amazing healing several years ago. I had ruptured a disc in my, in my lower back, and for weeks I was in great pain. I could hardly function. And then one Sunday, I think it was at this service, several of you laid hands on me as you prayed for healing. I woke up Monday morning pain-free. Yeah, it was awesome. Tuesday, I went to the neurosurgeon. And he said many people, after looking at the MRI, he said many people with a rupture like mine had opted for surgery. And I told him the pain was gone. And he was surprised. And here's one last thing that this might qualify as an amazing miracle. Yesterday, nine guys actually enjoyed, I think, a seven-hour marriage retreat with their wives. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's applause for that. And maybe they took one for their wives because it was Valentine's Day weekend after all. And so it was a way to, to kind of work that all around. Now, were some of these things that I just mentioned miracles? 
maybe. I don't know. See, God provides healing. God is involved in our everyday lives. The Holy Spirit can turn the most hardened heart around to God. God can do miracles, there's no question, but not everything is a miracle in the biblical sense of a miracle. An example I like to use is a a newborn baby. It's often called a miracle. Babies are an amazing blessing. They're probably one of the highlights of life. But I don't think they qualify as a biblical miracle because babies are born every day. It's something that is a natural occurrence. See, miracles go against the norms of nature. Jesus raised a guy named Lazarus from the dead. Doing that went against nature. Dead people don't come back to life. That was a miracle. Miracles glorify God. Miracles point people to Christ. Miracles are awesome. This morning we're continuing our our study in John's Gospel. We're in chapter 2. We're in the first verses of of chapter 2. And John chapter 2 verse 11 is often called the book of signs. The book of signs. Those chapters from chapter 2 to 11. And a sign is a miracle performed by Jesus. And in these chapters, there are seven signs or miracles that Jesus performs. And and the last sign in this section of John is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It happens in chapter 11. We're not going to get quite that far this morning. We're going to look at John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It's actually printed in your message outline in your bulletin. If you got one on the way in, you can open up your Bible to John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. You might want to read along with me. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, although the servants who had drawn it knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then they get out the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Scotty Smith is a pastor down in Tennessee. He's also an adjunct professor, or he was an adjunct professor at Covenant Seminary. And Scotty states that this first sign of Jesus answers the question, who is Jesus? And then he goes on to suggest four responses to that question, who is Jesus? Jesus is the Lord of creation, the Messiah, the bridegroom, the Lord of glory. 
And we're going to talk about those, each one of those. But before we get to those titles of Jesus, I want us to work through some of the details in the first verses of this passage. And to do that, we're going to use a Bible interpretation process that we teach our eighth graders here. It's a simple three-step process. First step is to observe, to interpret is the second, and then to apply. See, first we have to observe what's in the passage. We ask, what? What's going on here? Where is it taking place? Who's there? We look for repeated words, because we always say this, if God has a repeated word in a passage, he's trying to get our attention. We see if there's any phrases that stand out. We take note of anything that maybe looks a little different or unusual to us. So follow along with me as I read again John chapter 2, 1 through 5. It's going to be on the screen. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to them, said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So I don't want you to answer out loud, but as you look at that passage, either on the screen or in your Bible or on the outline, what do you observe? What's going on? Where are they? Who's there? What stands out to you? And then we interpret. What do these verses mean? How do they fit within the biblical narrative, the biblical story? And so as you think about that, I'm just going to share a few of my simple observations and interpretation for these verses. So obviously it was the third day since Jesus' encounter. It was actually the third day since his encounter with Nathaniel. Scholars suggested it was Sunday. And Jesus was at this wedding in Canaan and Galilee, and his mom and his disciples were there. And of course they ran out of wine. Now if you're serving wine and you run out, that's a bad thing. Doesn't matter if it happened back then or if it happens today. Now, you know what? I actually don't think running out of wine compares to being in an event like that and running out of food. Much more important. Or running out of chocolate. Well, Jesus' mom apparently wanted him to fix the situation. And Jesus' response to her at first seems kind of rude. You know, she basically just says to him, they have no wine. And then Jesus says to her, he says, woman... I'm not sure how that came out, but woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, as I look at those words, if I referred to my wife or my mom as woman, it's probably not going to go well for me. It might show that I didn't learn anything yesterday in our marriage retreat. But Jesus wasn't being disrespectful. In Jesus' time, Woman was a polite term, it was a proper term, and yet it wasn't a warm term like mom or mommy or mother or uh, mama. On the cross, Jesus said to his mom, he said, woman, behold your son, as he referred to John. It wasn't a put down, but, but as I learned yesterday in our marriage retreat, we need to be careful with our words. Because they can come back to get us. And so again, calling your wife, uh, your mother, or any lady, woman, and saying it that way, should be avoided, no matter your intentions. So Jesus' next words might catch our, our attention. Look again at verses 4 and 5 there. 
Jesus said, what does this have to do with me? Jesus is saying, them being out of wine at a reception, what do you want me to do about it? It's not something that I need to address. And in this case, he was, kind of, he was gently correcting his mom. And he then said these words. He said, my hour has not yet come. And, and we're thinking about that. And, and what's he mean? Is he talking about a specific hour of the day or what? Well, if you look through John's gospel, if you've got like a study Bible, you can see that the word hour, as in Jesus' hour, is mentioned seven times in John. And each time the hour refers to Jesus' time of suffering and death. If you think about it, it is the climax of human history. It is the hour when Jesus took our sins upon himself. It's the hour when he completed his mission. Jesus was making it clear to those who heard him that it really wasn't the time for a climactic display. A climactic display that would accelerate his heading to the cross. That was going to come later. And so with that, Mary backs off then and she says, well, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. And you can imagine her here kind of humbling herself. Professor Dan Doriani says when Mary came to Jesus as his mom, he politely put her off. When she came as a disciple, Jesus graciously, graciously acted, and his actions were shocking. Jesus turned water into wine. Now, if you've been in church, you've heard this story so many times that you're thinking, yeah, I know that, I know that. But that was a big deal. He turned water into wine, and, and the fact is that Jesus did it quietly. Jesus didn't announce, he didn't say, Stand back, everyone. Watch as I perform this miracle. Can I have a drum roll? Oh, Carolyn's gone. Can I have a drum roll? I am going to turn water into wine, and not just any wine, not the cheap stuff. I'm going to turn it into the best wine you've ever had. You can all applaud now. That is what I would have been tempted to do. I would have tempted to put on a show. I'd be the star, not God. But if you read this passage, only a few people realize what had happened. Jesus was not some circus magician. He didn't need the oohs and the ahs of the crowd. And that example is a reminder to you and I. When we're serving in Jesus' name, when we're doing good in Jesus' name, we aren't seeking the praise of men. People might notice, and that can be a good thing, because if they do notice... What we do then is we point them to Jesus. And so that brings us to the question, who is Jesus? He is the Lord of creation. Can we say that together? He is the Lord of creation. Jesus turned water into wine. He showed that he had power over nature. He had power over creation. He just demonstrated this power other times. He calmed a storm. He stopped the wind. Jesus cast out demons. He healed the sick, the lame, and the blind. He created a smorgasbord out of a few fish and bread. He walked on water. He raised a dead man named Lazarus. He killed a fig tree with just a word. And of course, he himself rose from the dead. Jesus' sign of turning water into wine pointed to the truth that Jesus is God. Because only God can do such things. Jesus was showing his deity. And that was important. 
You know, when, when you and I read this narrative, if we're, if we're Christians, if we put our trust in Jesus and we know who he is, we know that Jesus is God, right? We expect miracles. But I think what we struggle with today is to remember that Jesus was also human. But contrast that to the people back then, the people that knew Jesus when he was growing up. They knew he was human. There was no question about that. He was a carpenter from Nazareth. He was Joseph and Mary's boy. People saw a man. That's all they saw. By performing miracles, by performing signs, Jesus showed that he wasn't just a man. He was a God-man, 100% God and 100% man. Jesus is God incarnate, God in the flesh. Colossians 1.16 says it this way, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, I think that means everything, were created through him and for him. Jesus made it all. So who is Jesus? He's also the Messiah. Jesus is the the Messiah who came at just the right time to usher in the long-awaited messianic age. Now in the Bible, wine is often a symbol of joy. Psalm 104.15 states, God gave wine to gladden the hearts of man. Wine is a symbol of God's provision, his blessings. Jesus turned those six stone jars filled to the brim with water into wine, and each jar had about 20 to 30 gallons of water. That made a whole bunch of wine. But let me say this, it wasn't an invitation to drunkenness. The Bible is very clear that drunkenness is a sin. But wine can actually be a symbol of God's blessing. Wine is also a symbol of the Messianic age. Speaking of that Messianic age, the prophet Joel wrote of the wine presses being full and the vats overflowing with wine. Amos spoke of new wine dripping down from the mountains and flowing from the hills. The prophet Jeremiah declared the goodness of the Lord in providing grain, wine, and oil. When Mary said to Jesus, they have no wine, commentator Richard Phillips states that she might as well have said, they have no joy. Jesus coming to earth set into motion a time where there would be endless joy for all God's people. In John 141, Jesus announced, or uh, Andrew announced to his brother, we have found the Messiah. We found the Christ. That means anointed. Jesus is the anointed one. To the Jewish people at that time, the Messiah would teach and lead and save God's people. Now their interpretation of saving was a lot different than what Jesus truly came to do. The Messiah, though, is the promised Savior. The Messiah, Jesus, brings exceedingly great joy. And it's a joy that lasts forever. And so who is Jesus? He's the Lord of creation. He is the Messiah, and he's also the bridegroom. The water that Jesus turned to wine in those stone jars was used for the Jewish rites of purification. See, the Jewish people were obsessed with ceremonial cleanliness. 
ceremonial cleanliness. Mark 7, 3, 4 states, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Well, that could be a good thing. But they were a little OCD when it came to being ceremonially clean. It'd be like us carrying on our belt or in our pocket or in our purse maybe a one-gallon jug of hand sanitizer. And we squirt it all over ourselves whenever we touch anything. Now I know, I have to say this, I know there are people who carry a small bottle of sanitizer wherever they go. I'm married to one, I work with another. And I'm not referring to you. If that's what you do, that's a good thing. See, we get the idea of being clean. With the flu season in full swing and the coronavirus still in the news, people are washing their hands. They're probably washing their hands a lot more than they usually do. You know, I knew a woman that I worked with years ago, and the first thing she would do when she came into work every day was to get out the Lysol spray. And she'd spray everything on her desk, the mouse, her keyboard, the desktop, even her pens and pencils. She cleaned the outside of everything. And it probably helped her, but you know what? She still got sick. But that's what the Pharisees did. They cleaned the outside. They put on a show. It's interesting, too, to look. There were six jars for purification at the wedding in Cana. Seven is the number of perfection in the Bible. And this is speculation, but maybe the six jars was a sign of the incomplete cleansing of the ceremonial washings. The Pharisees missed something. Jesus once said to these guys, he said, you're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Jesus took that water of purification, something that was meant for outward purification and provided a blessing. But we know that Jesus actually cleans us differently. He purifies us from the inside out. He changes our hearts. He washes away our sin. The prophet Isaiah wrote this. He said, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. It's a beautiful picture. As a Christian, as a believer, you've been covered with the righteousness of Christ. In Ephesians 5, Paul instructed men to love their wife like Christ loved the church. It's a great passage, guys. But then he wrote of Jesus' sacrifice. He said he gave up his life for her. He gave up his life for the church to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. Jesus is the bridegroom. He is the bridegroom who purifies his bride through his death and resurrection. Let me ask you one more time. Who is Jesus? Let's say what's on the board together. Whoops. Wrong passage. Let's say that what's on the board together. Who is Jesus? He is the Lord of glory. John 2.11 states that this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Jesus' glory is revealed in his deity. In John, the seven signs that Jesus performed reveal his glory. Jesus revealed his glory to this in this case to a selected few it was kind of a behind the scenes display of power and i think that's important because it shows 
that Jesus is the Lord of glory by his willingness to approach ordinary people. He met their everyday needs. The wedding ran out of wine. It was kind of a big deal, but it really wasn't that big of a deal. But to save the newlyweds from embarrassment, Jesus provided. Our Savior cares about us. It shows in the big things, and it shows in the not-so-big things. Jesus can do the big miracles. He brought Lazarus back to life. Jesus may cure the cancer or the disease. He can mend an irreparably broken marriage. But don't forget that Jesus can also do the little things. A beautiful sunrise in the morning to start our day off right. A moment of peace in a hectic week. A shot of confidence when we really need it. And he also encourages us to provide those blessings to others. The water to wine miracle is a reminder to give God the glory for the big things and the everyday blessings. Earlier, we dug into the first five verses of this passage, and we observed what was there, and we interpreted its meaning. But we didn't talk about the last step I mentioned. We didn't apply it to our life. The application of any passage answers the question as in, as so what? The question, so what, as in, so what does this mean to me? Jesus miracle at the wedding at Cana in Galilee has a huge so what application to all of us. At the end of verse 11, Jesus wrote, and his disciples believed in him. His disciples believed in him. Now, they didn't fully understand who Jesus was at this point. They had no idea what he was going to do at the cross. But they believed. They witnessed Jesus doing something only God can do, a miracle. They had no clue what to, was to come. But they believed. And the truth is that we've got an advantage. We know the whole story. We've seen the ending of the story, and we believe. We believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We believe he's the Lord of creation. Jesus created us. He created everything we see. He sustains us. He provides for us. We believe Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Lord and Savior. We believe Jesus is the bridegroom. We're his bride. He's purified us. We are righteous in the sight of God. One day we're going to enjoy him for a great wedding feast in the new heaven and earth. And we believe Jesus deserves the glory. He's worthy of our praise and our worship. That is the so what of this passage. We've witnessed the truth of Jesus, and so we believe. Our belief is to grow. With each day, we can believe with greater confidence. We understand more deeply. We surrender a little more. We offer greater praise. But not everybody believes, do they? And so I think the question in this passage comes to us. The disciples believed. Do you believe? 
if you struggle with belief, that's okay as long as you ask God to help you with your unbelief. If you've got questions, if you want to believe, if you want to trust your life to Jesus, I'd say talk to Pastor David or talk to me. Talk to somebody in this church. We would be thrilled to tell you who Jesus is and what he did just for you. See, our greatest desire is the desire of God, and that is for you to believe, to trust your life to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you humbly. We see the miracles that Jesus performed. We look back from 2,000 years and sometimes I think we miss the, the significance and the amazing miracles that he performed. But we believe. Father, help us with our unbelief. Help us when we doubt to seek your truth. Help us to, to be your witness in this world as we testify to our Lord and Savior. Let us not be afraid to go to work or to school or to wherever you take us to speak of your glory. Let us always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have given us. You are a good God. You love us. You saved us. And we praise you and thank you. Amen. If you're able, please stand for our closing song.